Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Uh, Rick, we got some news overnight. Uh, the President of the United States will be addressing a joint session of Congress. We often call these uh, State of the Union addresses. Um, we uh, usually have them in February. Uh, I think occasionally they can even be late January. Uh, but we got a date. It's not really a State of the Union because he's uh, the incoming president here. Um, so it's, a, it's a, a speech to the joint session, and it will be on April 28th. Uh, so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about a big announcement the president is making uh, today about Afghanistan. Uh, but but just, just to set the stage here, Rick, uh, we are going to be talking today to a good friend of mine uh, named Neil King, who is on a most extraordinarily interesting journey by foot. Uh, so I don't want us to go on too long with this trivial stuff. I want us to get to this conversation with Neil. But just, just, just to kind of put that teaser out there, a remarkable story. We talked to somebody um, literally in the middle of this of this journey. It's, it's, it's uh, well, you'll, you'll hear. You'll hear all about it. Yeah, it's amazing, John, that you could actually travel on foot anywhere these days. Uh, Neil's doing some great work, and I, I look forward to that conversation. When, when, you, when you look at this uh, this this speech to the joint session that we now know, we now, we now have a time. Um, this is going to be, you know, corresponding, uh, uh, you know, pretty closely to wrapping up his 100 days. And by the way, we can define the 100 days a couple of different ways, I've learned. Uh, there's the first 100 days of the new Congress. Uh, there's the first 100 days of, of the president. And I guess, given that this presidency got off to a weird start because there was an impeachment trial of Trump that started off, you could basically... You could probably count also the first hundred days after the end of all of that, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, but there are some extraordinary restrictions uh, put on this because we still are in the middle of COVID. We still can't have a packed House chamber like we would normally uh, expect to see. This is going to look very different. Yeah, and everything around Congress is different these days. So we'll have severe restrictions on how many people can be there, how many members of the press can be there. John, you're always there. Are you going to break your streak this year, though? I've been there uh, for, for more than a decade straight, every single one inside the chamber. And I, I, I first went inside the chamber back in, in, in 2003, I believe it was, uh, under, under George W. Bush. So I, I've, I've been doing this for a long, long time. Uh, but no, I'm not going to be there. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm not going to be there. I'll be part of our, our broadcast coverage on the, on the set uh, in, in New York. But Rick, I mean, I, I we're looking at some of the uh, some of the restrictions here. I mean, it, it, one it, one kind of background briefing that our team was given on this said that not all the senators would be allowed to attend. I mean, would you want to be on that committee deciding which senators wouldn't be allowed to come into the state of the union? Maybe it'll make life easy for some people that might <laughs> they might be thinking they should boycott yeah, yeah, it. I don't know. Please, please. You know, yeah. It's this. It's an interesting moment in the presidency, and because wherever you want to define hundred days, you know, I I've been reading an interesting an interesting book by Douglas Brinkley, the great historian about. Uh, called American Moonshot about, about JFK. And in that book, he talks about JFK going back to Congress for a second time early in, uh, in 1961 in his presidency. And that was that second time in May of 61 that he gave the famous, uh, we will go to the moon at the end of this, uh, at the end of this, uh, this decade. And that, that's one of the defining moments of the, of the Kennedy years and of the 1960s. And it came at that second address. And I feel like now you have a president who 
you know, COVID certainly isn't gone, but he is confronting actively the challenge of his time or maybe any time, maybe of a century, and now trying to do more and outlining a further vision in a presidency that's been, you know, however you want to count the 100 days, he hasn't been visible for all those 100 days. It's not like the first 100 days or 100 hours of the Trump White House years where the president was everywhere. There's been long stretches where even people like you and I who get paid to watch this stuff, the, the president has not been top of mind. So to reset that at the end of this uh, end of this period, at the, toward the end of that 100 days, to look forward about what's next for him, uh, whether that's the big infrastructure push, maybe some challenges in foreign policy he'll be talking about, it comes at, at a pretty fascinating moment. The president is still pretty popular, uh, very narrow uh, control of, of both the House and the Senate, and, and a big question mark about what else he tries to get done or can get done. And he's announcing now that uh, U.S. troops will be fully withdrawn from Afghanistan uh, by September 11th, 2021, which, of course, is the 20th anniversary of, of 9-11. Um, it's, by the way, I, I, I think it's interesting this is something that Donald Trump was eager to do and, 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 and been often pushed, pushed back heavily by his own a national security team. Trump wanted to get out of Afghanistan. I know from the very beginning he was talking about getting out immediately. Um, and, and one of the frustrations that he, uh, he expressed, by the way, a frustration not entirely unlike the frustration Obama sometimes expressed, but was about the, the, you know, the kind of the heavy pushback from, uh, well, I guess Obama would call it the, uh, or, 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 you know, Ben Rhodes, Obama's foreign policy advisor, uh, deputy national security advisor, described as the blob, what Trump allies would describe as the deep state. But, but it's very hard to actually do this. But Biden, who's been talking about withdrawing from Afghanistan for a long time, I mean, actually, he said he, he, said he would do it in the debate that Martha Raddatz hosted back in 2012 when he debated, uh, you know, VP candidate Paul Ryan. Um, and it didn't happen. Uh, but, but now he's adamant. U.S. troops gone. 20 years is enough. There will always be a reason to stay. It's time to get out. You know, I mean, th th this is a direction that Obama wanted to go as well. But um, yes, but as we as you know, John, I mean, th their foreign policy, even even behind closed doors, was never perfectly aligned. And uh, yep. Biden came came you know into those Obama years, uh, having been the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, part of the kind of permanent establishment around these things, maybe less of a an automatic contrarian than Obama was in, in confronting challenges like this. And it is interesting because you're, we're seeing a lot of criticism come in, I think predictable criticism from the right, Republicans saying you're cutting and running. You know, they were a little quieter when it was Trump talking about doing the same, yeah. the same sort of thing. In fact, you know, we know President Biden is moving about six months slower than, than President Trump said he would. Uh, but it is, it, it, it's a big first test or early test of, of Biden's vision on foreign policy. As we know, uh, it was never always, he never always won those debates inside the Obama White House. And a lot of folks in and around Obama were glad he wasn't winning those debates. Now he's the decision maker. Now he's the guy that's pulling the strings. And, and he's the one that's making this, you know, relative, pretty dramatic announcement on the 20th anniversary. And, and it, it is interesting to see it tied to a symbolic, uh, you know, moment on the calendar. And of course, national security challenges don't usually, you know, neatly cooperate with, uh, with, with, with a political calendar. Uh, but, but I think that the, you know, the way, the way Biden is looking at this is, you know, you, you, you've got to set a deadline. You've got to do it. You've got to make the break. Because again, there will always be a reason why you cannot leave.
You need to you need to force it. And it ends up being a pretty key commitment for him to, to keep because it's something that he has said consistently as a candidate for president, as you said, as a candidate for vice president. Uh, so to see it come to this to this moment, um, you know, we'll see if it has to slide again. That's been another part of the history around these seemingly uh, never ending conflicts, the forever wars, as they're sometimes uh, being called. And and I think it's also worth worth noting here that it's been a big touchstone on the left to see uh, an end to a, a conflict, an actual an actual end date. Uh, there's a generation of politicians who are coming up now who uh, were, frankly, they were they were kids on 9/11, and they've seen this the, the war in Afghanistan and the, the U.S. troop presence there for basically their entire lives or their entire sentient lives. And there's some of the folks who are saying, you know, time to end this thing. We can't have wars that, that, that go on forever. We need to have this end date. Uh, and what's your sense going into this uh, into this joint session speech? And as, as we're all starting already to take stock on on on, on the first hundred days, uh, it, it seems that that Biden has done a remarkable job of unifying a party which is rarely unified. Um, I mean, he he's. He seems to have largely. I mean, there, there, there's grumbling on issue here, issue there, uh, but but the you know the the progressive seems to be uh, progressive seem to be largely on board. They could like what he did with the COVID relief bill. Uh, they would like this uh, this next big infrastructure bill to be bigger, uh, no doubt. But they but but they like what he's doing. Um, I mean, one one. Biden supporter, somebody who uh, has been, been a longtime Biden supporter, uh, said to me, you know, he kind of campaigned as a moderate, and now he's governing a little bit more like the way he would, the, you know, Elizabeth Warren uh, uh, might have. Uh, but but he's he seems to have, by and large, kept kept the party on board. He has. And, and to the extent that there's been sniping, it's been a little bit more in the center, the moderates who are a little more upset and keeping yep. him in line, which is, uh, to me, a, pr- a pretty big surprise. You know, I saw someone write recently, uh, you know, that he, he, he has shown that he's no LBJ in, in terms of uh, managing relationships in Congress. Clearly, he knows more about the Senate than anyone, any senator or any president since LBJ. I think that's a pretty fair assessment, given how long he spent there. Yep. But you know, keep in mind, you know, LBJ came in with you know, majorities that were well into the 60s uh, for Democrats. Now, a lot of those Democrats were Southern Democrats who opposed them on civil rights. But it's a different to, 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 to keep in mind that he's not only that he's uniting a party, but he's uniting a party with the narrowest of advantages. It's a 50-50 Senate, John. And in the House, Nancy Pelosi can lose two, have two defectors if, and still be able to it's carry amazing, something over the finish line. Unbelievably narrow. So that's part of what's a lot, keeping the discipline is knowing that it doesn't take much for, to, to pick off from the, from the other party. Um, it's, also, it, it's also, though, putting, I think, some pressure on him to, to show bipartisan credentials in, in some other ways. Because he can deliver and, and has delivered already without any Republicans, is he still looking for them? Uh, do Republicans feel singed right now by the way that he's been treated, but but he's treated them? And and I think that you know this White House likes to talk to public opinion polls and say that bipartisanship means that they've got bipartisan support, Republican support as well as Democratic support. They're not getting Republican votes. That to me was a key promise of Biden, either implicitly or explicitly, and that is not something he's delivered on. And to the extent that that is a theme for this next phase of the Biden presidency, that'll be fascinating to watch. And Republicans are firmly into the into the position it seems to me of he's overreaching and we are the resistance uh i mean they are fundraising off this uh they uh i mean you know there, there's a lot of complaints about him going back on his word to work with to work with republicans but but you don't get a sense that there's this groundswell of 
of Republicans eager to make a deal uh, on any of this stuff, frankly, uh, with, uh, with, with Joe Biden. And then you have the news out of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the president gives a speech to a big event for donors over the weekend and wasn't exactly met with glowing reviews. And this, I mean, this is a private speech, but, right. but of course, word got out very quickly afterwards. We've talked to people that were there. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was very much a, it was very much the Donald Trump, uh, that we saw going into, frankly, the Donald Trump that we saw going into January 6th. Yeah. And Lord, we came into the year talking a lot about Republican divisions. Now they, they get papered over by the opposition to Biden, but what is looming is what the party is for, um, going forward. And Biden has not yet picked them off, picked off any Republicans on for the Biden agenda. There's been great unity. I think now opposing the, the broadly constructed infrastructure package, but when you get back into the question of who who represents this party moving forward, they can't quit Trump. And you know, you and I have talked a lot about, and you've written about what Trump's future in the party is. That's still still an open question. But clearly, he's not disappeared. Clearly, he's not gone. Clearly, he's still a magnetic force. The fact that you, that these that multiple Republican gatherings are going in and around his properties in Florida, knowing that the money, if if not the man itself, are a draw at this moment, that tells you where things stand. And that's a lot of what is is driving the 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 Republican Party right now continues to be dominated uh, three months or so after he left office by by the former president. But they go down there. This is the big. This is this is again as far as there is such a thing. The Republican establishment, and he comes out to speak to them, and it's all the same complaints about the election being stolen from him. Uh, he's even complaining about Mike Pence still. Uh, he's, you know, ripping apart Mitch McConnell as they're trying to fight to win back a, a Senate Republican majority. I mean, it's really, um, uh, the, 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 the party is in this situation where they know that they need Trump, or at least they think they need Trump because they need his supporters and they know that Trump is, uh, is, is, is in many ways a disaster for them. It's, uh, it, it, it's not, Trump is not the path back to, uh, a Tim majority, but they, they can't. They can't live with them. They can't live without them. Uh, fascinating. But Rick, let, let, let's let's take a quick break, and we are going to come back, and we're going to go in an entirely different direction. I think we all, uh, I think you all enjoy this. Uh, we're going to talk again to, uh, uh, to to a good friend of mine who is making a rather extraordinary walk by foot uh, from America's current capital to its first capital. Right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are going to take a very different uh, turn right now and one that I'm really, really quite excited about. Uh, my friend Neil King, who is a uh, legendary former reporter for the Wall Street Journal, who I know because we covered uh, the State Department together and traveled all over the world for the period of, 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 of a few years with, uh, with, with various secretaries of state. Um, awesome writer, is embarked on a journey by foot. He is going from uh, Washington, D.C., where he lives, just just steps away from the Capitol, uh, to New York, uh, to Manhattan. And, uh, and he's taking a very circuitous route. And along the way, Neil is writing these just awesome dispatches, which he tells us uh, will become a book, I predict will be a very big hit. So when it becomes a big hit, you can say you first heard about this interesting journey by foot through uh, the Washington New York corridor here on Powerhouse Politics. So we'll begin our conversation. We caught up with Neil while he was walking through Doylestown, Pennsylvania. 
here it is. I have to say, this this is some of the most wonderful writing, uh, fresh new writing that, that, that I have uh, read in some time, and it's and and I, it's the first thing I I, I turn to. I want to see if I've gotten your your latest you know your latest uh, write up, these stories, your observations uh, of this of this area. And again, you're taking a meandering trip. You're not literally walking up I ninety five. That wouldn't be very interesting. Your observations are incredible. But I I, I want to kind of dig down into a couple of these if you don't mind, uh, Neil. Are you sure? And this is classic. You constantly find these people either in real life today or from our deep distant past. Uh, and I have no idea how you come up with these people, but Johannes Kelpius, who um, was, was running around Pennsylvania about the, uh, in the 1690s, and, and, and your description of him kind of caught my eye because you said Kelpius was a pietist, a mystic, and a doomsayer, which I immediately thought of our executive producer of this podcast, uh, Trevor Hayes. <laughs> Um, often the way I think of him, uh, but, but, but anyway, but, but can, can you, can you describe this? You, 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 you come across the, 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 this cave. I mean, it, go ahead. T- tell me, tell me this story. Well, I mean, part of the thing that's been fascinating about walking is that you're stringing one step after the other, one person met after the other. It, it alters everything. The three miles an hour thing alters everything. And so it is a, very much for one thing leads to another. So oddly enough, I, I went to another extraordinary place in, in Philadelphia called Eastern State Penitentiary, which, by the way, was one of the main reasons that de Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, came to America in 1831, was to visit this penitentiary, which at that time was brand new. And when I was there, I was talking to a guy who led me around and showed me everything. And he told me about this hermit's cave, this cave where this guy Kelpius had lived. And I just was like, oh my God, I've got to go check that out. The thing that was fascinating about not so much him, but why he went to this place that I went to, is that when he arrived in Philadelphia, Philadelphia was basically brand new. It was 1694. um, And he was part of this sort of cult that thought the world was about to end. So they wanted to go into the wilderness. And at the time, the wilderness was like six miles from Philadelphia. So when I went there yesterday, part of it was a kind of as a too humorous thing to see, like, well, what did the outer reaches of the wilderness, so to speak, look like then? And of course, it didn't look much like wilderness now. So, I mean, it didn't look like wilderness much at the moment. But anyway, it's, uh, the fun thing about the walk is you just don't know who's going to mention something that will lead you to the next place. I met a guy a week ago or so, and he mentioned a place called Yellow Springs, which is also always outside of Philadelphia. And he said it was the first ever U.S. military hospital. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. So I walked there. I think, you know, I'm going to turn all this into a book. And I think one of the themes is going to be during a period now when we're so rethinking our history and tearing down statues and deciding the many things we don't like about the country, which I think is fine and in a lot of ways healthy, this kind of reckoning. But I also think we should try to unearth and and reemerge the things that are there to be celebrated about our own past and about our own character as this kind of eccentric, um, you know, adventure-seeking people. And, um, you know, all of this stuff was a huge experiment at the time when other people first came and, and, and settled these places. And there's a lot of aspects of our history that I'm kind of going to look at or in cases speak to people about. And a lot of it is trying to kind of, I don't know, unearth these, aspects of our past that are worth 
thinking about anew. I mean, uh, another guy that you uh, that you 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 unearth uh, who seems to be having somewhat of a of, of a renaissance uh, is this guy Benjamin Lay, who uh, was was a Quaker. He, he he was he was what he was basically excommunicated. Yeah, I mean, he was just he was one of the first abolitionists. He was a four foot tall dwarf, basically that was like a hunchback. He was a almost like a performance artist and kind of provocateur. And again, you know. There aren't statues around for somebody like Benjamin Lay, but he was one of the forces that convinced the Quakers to renounce slavery. And the Quakers were, in turn, one of the primary forces that really drove the abolitionist movement in America, um, without which, you know, who knows exactly where our history would have gone over that stretch. So these kinds of individuals are really fascinating and important. And he was just a total quirky oddball who deserves more attention. Yeah, yeah, you you point out that you know he he kind of was calling for a boycott uh, before we knew what a boycott was. Um, among the the loudest of America's abolitionists, long before boycotts, he urged the Quakers to eschew the products created through slavery, including tea, sugar, and coffee. Uh, he was a dwarf, a hunchback, and a lifelong vegetarian. I just love the freaking detail; it's so great. But I I want to ask you 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 ended up um, in in a, in, a, in a Quaker meeting house. And I have to say this was one point where your writing kind of lost me a little bit. But, but I loved being lost in this. Um, I, I don't even know what you're talking about, frankly, here. But, <laughs> but, 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 but you go to this meeting house that um, has a retractable, retractable roof or something. Is this right? And, 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 and it's right before sunset. I may be getting it all wrong, but I just want to read. No, that's right. That's right. Okay. I just want to read what you wrote. And, and, and this is where you, you actually wrote this in your just notebook. Uh, and then you just... Let it, let it pour out onto the page here. Uh, so these are your raw, unedited notes that you let us see. You're lying on your back in a Quaker meeting house that has a retractable roof that has been opened right as the sun is setting. This is Neil King, ladies and gentlemen, writing this. A cloth-like fabric of oceanic green, luxuriantly smooth, begins to turn blue and impose itself, pushing inward, a radiant periwinkle blue. As the ceiling went slowly pink, the sky turns intensely green, clover green. There is no sky, only color. Then splotchy gray, monochromatically gray to radiant purple. It is now the softest, gauzy, baby pink. I'm going to keep going. As the ceiling goes blue, the sky turns pale gray. It becomes greenish, yellow, like old newsprint. Then back to oceanic green. The sky becomes so solidly green, you're convinced that there is no sky there. None at all. Burnt orange, now protruding into the room, the ceiling turns taupe and the sky a light pale radiant blue, all of it in Rothko hues. You want, to, you want to see a star passing or a plane to prove it is the sky. The eye creates stars where there are no stars. Finally, just a solid, intensely black, black. Um, and, 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 and you, you assure me there were no drugs involved in the writing of this. Oh my God, John, that was such a great reading. That's hilarious. Um, no, I mean, it, it deserves a little explanation. So there's a, there's a actually quite well-known artist, James Terrell. He does these installations. They're called skyscapes. There are about 80 of them around the world. They rely on an enclosed space where the roof is then able to open up to the sky. And it was about an eight by nine in a rectangle. And then over 50 minutes, there are various changes to the roof, the color of the roof. And what it's basically doing is 
showing you kind of what an optical illusion is for all of us when it comes to color, because you're seeing these things that, yes, they are the sky, but it's in contrast to the things that are going on on the ceiling itself. So all those descriptions were actually quite accurate descriptions of the sky itself. But it was, and so at the end they said, Neil, do you have any questions? And I was like, yeah, like, why are we doing this in a house of worship? Because it's basically saying everything is relative and doubt is, it should be where you start from because it's, it's all, it's all kind of flabbergasting. So. Well, one of the things I love is just the way people greet you and, and I think it, it's, I mean, some people think you're, you're odd for, for doing this. Uh, some, some people are, are, are quite fascinated. Some people are kind of nonplussed. Uh, but but the, the little moments, I mean, there was the one you just mentioned, I think maybe it was even today, you mentioned this uh, um, uh, on Twitter or yesterday, that you wanted to play tennis, you're a tennis player, but I mean, you're, you're traveling with what, you have a backpack and you're walking, right? I mean, you, you don't have like yep, a, yep. you don't have a convoy that's like really uh, secretly like following you along, supplying you, no, right? I mean, no, 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 okay, no. right. So, so th- th- you're just walking, how the hell are you going to play tennis? Um, but you, 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 you came across uh you know, some tennis courts and there were a couple of people playing, they were wrapping up and, you know, you asked if you could play. And of course that meant, Hey, can I borrow one of your rackets? Yeah, I know. You know, the thing is, I just want to say that the difference between walking and driving is about 20, it's a factor of 20. You drive 60, you walk three miles an hour. Right. The difference in interacting with people is also about a factor of 20. I mean, I had all these experiences with Mennonites and others along the way that would have been impossible if I'd been in a car because I wouldn't have seen them. They wouldn't have wanted to interact with me the same way if I pulled into their driveway, if I was parking and playing, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to overstate how different it is that you become as a person, but also your interaction. So when those two guys, they were both, by the way, Asian Americans, their English was sort of spotty, but they were really funny. They had great tennis game. I was kind of acting as a line judge when they were playing and at the end, I said, hey, and one of them was like, sure, I'll play with you. And so if I had pulled up in my car and jumped out, it might have been a little strange. But the fact that he could see that I was a walker, like contextualized everything differently. So the way we interacted was from a different, more kind of directly human point of view. And that's the thing that's been fascinating. I've, I've encountered people because my phone battery ran out and I didn't, I needed direction, you know, like so. It's, it's sort of forcing a degree of human contact that a lot of us, I guess, have lost because technology has made it easier to get by without asking for directions, for instance. By the way, your, your, your photos are great, too. And, 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 then, and, then, and then you also you had that experience where you, you, you ran into, was it a, was it a Mennonite who wanted you to give a, a oh, message God. to somebody? Um, oh, that whole story, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean so, so, so just briefly, because this is a mix, these are people that, that, that do not engage in technology. Uh, but 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 tell me tell me tell me that story. Well, I'll tell you the quick version of that story because yeah. it was really quite amazing. It's almost like a parable. I'm walking down a highway in Northern Maryland. I come to a bridge that's too narrow to cross without risking my life. I take a detour down a little road to the left. I run into this couple. They're in their 70s. We talk. They wonder where I'm going. I tell them I'm going through Lancaster County on my way to New York. They say, Oh my gosh, we used to live in Lancaster County. Uh, we live in a town called Ephrata. I said, I'm going to Ephrata. They said, oh, we live with this farm family, the name of Hoover. They live down Crooked Lane there. We haven't talked to them for years. I said, wait, I'm, <laughs> I'm going there. I will 
go to their farm and tell them that you're well. And they were dumbfounded. And they were like, you will? And I was like, yeah, of course. So I made it a point a week later when I got there to go to Crooked Lane and uh, find these farmers. And these are horse and buggy type Mennonites. And I arrived at their 88-acre farm and bring news, go, news of good tidings that their friends are well. And they just, they, hey, they didn't quite know what to make of it. But once they did, they were just sort of astonished and amazed. And we stood there and talked with each other for, you know, 20, 25 minutes. And it was a conversation I've never had the likes of in my life. And it was fascinating. And so that's the kind of thing that can happen. It was, it was great. And, 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 and I, I, you, you, I think you also say that you offered to show them a picture on your phone of, of their friend. And they're like, no, no, we don't, we don't. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even think the guy ever looked at a phone before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not yeah. going to do that kind of thing. Hey, uh, Neil King, I, you, you, you broke some news uh, for me uh, in this interview, uh, and I don't mean about um, uh, Johannes Kelpius. Uh, you, 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 you said you were going to turn this into a book. I was going to ask you to please turn this into a book. I'm glad to hear that that is the uh, the game plan. Um, I, I think that uh, I think this will be this is an incredible story. Uh, your observations, um, your observations are, are are really fun and important. And I hope the walk continues. I mean, when you get to New York, I mean, you know, you're getting all the steps, and I hope, I hope you can find. Uh, you know, I hope this is just the first leg. But uh, but thank you, thank you for taking a break. I don't want to keep you going. How, how many miles a day are you doing? Fifteen, sixteen, basically something like that. It varies. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, yeah. I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to hold you. You got to get back out there, man. No, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm good. John, <laughs> great to catch up. Fantastic to talk. Great to catch up. We'll talk to you later, Neil. Take care. Bye. And that is all the time we have for powerhouse politics. I want to thank uh, our entire powerhouse politics team and uh, you know, particularly um, our, our pietist and mystic and doomsayer executive director. Uh, but also Adia Robinson and Rick Klein, wherever he is. We will be back next week.